I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Erin Vick, Director, Nutrition Services for Westside Community Schools in Omaha. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Erin brings a creative focus to menu planning and construction to encourage a non-traditional school meal and child nutrition program. Professionally, he has worked with local independent restaurants, private clubs, and corporate hotels. Previous to his current position, Erin oversaw operations for the Institute for Culinary Arts at Metropolitan Community College, working with the Culinary Hospitality and Horticulture programs. Born and raised in Nebraska, he grew up in Omaha. Erin is a husband and father and friend. Erin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure being here. I, I wanted to start with earliest childhood food memories. I'll give you an example. So one for me is being about I don't know, maybe five years old. And it was walking the rows of strawberry plants in a pick-your-own-field in a small farm in uh, the southeast of England. And, of course, it was one in the basket and one in my mouth. And, you know, one in the <laughs> basket, <laughs> one in my mouth. And then well, you take wait. the basket. Thank you. Thank you. Of course, <laughs> I felt I was totally sick afterwards. Um, so it's a really early childhood memory and I just wonder what early childhood memories of food you have. You, know, you ask this, and there's a couple that couple of things that pop into my mind. First of all, the the family um, kind of holiday at my grandmother's house. I, I'll focus on the Thanksgiving holiday because that seems to be the one that sticks out. And I remember my cousins, who were much like siblings when I was very young. I, I have none of my own. Um, and the, and, you know, we had the kind of the proverbial little kids table, you know, so we were doing our thing. And so it was kind of a, you know, a pass and grab type situation, um, with the food. And I remember each group kind of had their own uh, garnishment that they would go for where the, the olives were the thing that majority of my cousins like, but my particular thing, my grandmother made, um, every year pickle their own bread and butter pickles. And to this day, um, and she's unable to do this, but I have a jar from a few years back still in my cupboard now, but I remember those were the go-to for me from those meetings. Um, kind of two side notes from that, my grandparents at that time in my life from the earliest, from when I was born early on, uh, up until I was probably in high school, had a uh, drive-in restaurant kind of that did a, a multitude of things kind of central Nebraska and just out, it was just, it was in Dannebrog, Nebraska, just outside of St. Paul, which I know you're familiar with. And it was the Dandy drive-in and uh, it was only open, you know, from spring to fall. And then they would close a couple months in the winter time and they had everything, you, you know, uh, 
a single digit to teenage human being would want to eat uh, and probably a few things we didn't want to eat, but that were great. But I remember I would spend time there during the summer and um, hang out at the drive-in. My cousins worked there. Uh, and so um, I got an early on kind of vision of that. And then outside of that, kind of from a restaurant perspective, I remember early on, since I, you, you said I was born and, you know, born and raised in Nebraska, grew up in Omaha, um, kind of an institution around here was Valentino's Pizza. But, and I remember being a member of the birthday club so every year for my birthday, we would go to Valentino. This is before the, the buffets and, uh, you know, all the pick out delivery options and things. It was just strictly you went. It was, a you know, a sit down restaurant, mostly or a takeout. And so we would sit and I'd get my my individual pizza. And then they had, you know, a few other things that came with that, with the, the Spumoni ice cream at the end, which was kind of the goal. I mean, pizza's great, but at that point, the ice cream was kind of the concept, but I think the first one, though, the, the, my grandmother's bread and butter pickles will be the one of the things that would be one of my earliest memories with that, but also something that, um, you know, still rings true today. I think those memories are really interesting as quite specific ones. And sometimes when I uh, speak to people, it's, it's interesting to see whether their current life is a manifestation of something that was an epiphany for them, or in some ways it, it, it was just like the air they they breathed it, it was kind of a slow absorption over the over their life so i'm kind of curious about how sort of food fed into you you know into into your sort of context of your growing up you know i think i think it it, it was probably a more of a subconscious seed i think i quite accidentally ended up making this a career i'm very happy that the you know the accident happened um but I, you know, when I started planning, you know, when you start in you know, high school and going into college and whatnot, um, when I initially started, either of them working in food, beverage, hospitality was not at, I don't even think it was on the list, but I, I worked, my, my first job was in hospitality. I don't think there's really, there was maybe a few offshoots, you know, part-time temporary work that might not have been in that field, but pretty much when I started working at 16, um, it was in some way or shape or form of, you know, whether it be a, you know, what we call front of the house, you know, taking care of guests in some respects. And then while I was in college and really kind of dialing down into, I'd already changed my major once to, I don't know if this is what I want to do, which was, you know, predominantly a math focused uh, major. I think it was actuarial science at the time. And then realized I was doing something that I truly enjoyed and that there's probably some avenues for me to pursue and, uh, and make a career out of this. Um, at that time, I was in private clubs, you know, working for a membership. And that seemed to be the initial direction. And then there, a couple of dominoes tipped over post-graduation that kind of led me into more of a, an independent restaurant, local restaurants, um, which really opened my eyes to um, what potential was out there for you know career avenues and and just for things that I enjoyed and wanted to experience what were those dominoes really they were um just individuals I met um and you know relationships whether they were friends or whether they were professional um that you know kind of kind of you know opened a door so to speak you know I I credit a childhood friend I grew up with 
who just happened to be a supervisor in a position at the first club I worked at and I needed a job and just so happened that those that connected right there and led me into this field, you know, led me into the hospitality field completely by accident and really just by laziness for all, you know, all honesty, someone said, I, you need a job, I can get you a job. And here I was. And then after that, you know, you you start to kind of find yourself surrounded, you know, socializing with people that are in similar environments. And I happen to be fortunate that I was connected to, you know, you know, some chefs and some other uh, restaurateurs, you know, just people that were in the business in various shapes or forms that were very strong and very good at what they do. Initially, it was kind of luck. And then as time grows and you build your, you know, because that's, you know, I was, I was a puppy at that point. Um, as you start to grow and increase your knowledge and broaden resume, you know, then that starts to open doors and you can connect and kind of make a few more um, decisions that might not be based so much on luck, but more on research and, and background. So I, you know, I really think that is it. I, you know, just because of the nature of the people I was surrounded by and that were in the business and happened to be in good locations with, you know, strong individuals in, whether it be in the kitchen or on the front of the house, I was able to then kind of piggyback on that initially to get in there. And then that led me into, you know, those next steps that really um, perpetuated my career. react if I had to put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you but react if you have to yeah. I'll react if I had to put some things in the past to and don't let them distract you but react if you have to yeah. react if you have to yeah. don't know the time boy. just wait and I'm yeah. one of a kind yeah. what's on your mind yeah. what hard to find yeah. You mentioned private clubs, but we also, um, you know, have this history with, you know, some fine restaurants mm -hmm. and also with uh, hospitality as a, a in an educational forum at Metro. And you also have um, some corporate hospitality too with, you know, large hotels in town. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing briefly that arc and, and what you sort of, what you sort of learn about food hospitality and, and the business of this on the way I, I mentioned the the initial club piece and that was really my high school college time frame um I, I would say I learned a lot about the the art of taking care of guests you know that was a time when people were still learning a very traditional model of service um not to say that you know, a more fluid version that's out there today isn't great. Um, but there is something to say about some of the structures and formality that used to exist and used to kind of be, this is how you do it. Uh, I, I think I am very blessed in that sense um, because it taught me a lot of things socially too that I never would have learned at home. You know, 
silverware and where it goes on the table and the glass and things like that. We didn't, you know, you, very, uh, very rarely were we ever at a place where my mother and I were sitting at a table and had a, you know, place settings, you know, wherever. Usually, it was usually like the family dinners I discussed earlier with Thanksgiving where you had place settings, that, that type of thing. So um, for my own benefit, I, I probably had to step up on a lot of things just because of the formality of that piece, but also just the basis of, of you know, kind of that interaction, um, the formal informality of the rules of communication in those pieces um, well, was really great. So then I start to move into um, more of the local restaurant scene, waiting tables, managing, supervising, that type of thing. And um, I think that particular time um, hadn't quite, you know, cause Omaha, well, we'll see what it looks like post COVID after, you know, the, the, everything is settled back when and wherever that's going to be. But um, pre COVID we had a, uh, you know, it's been a, a pretty robust food scene uh, with a lot of different areas and a lot of very skilled and talented chefs and uh, some very creative outlets out there and doing some really good things. I kind of came into the time frame as that was, you know, the scene was starting to maybe kind of change. And um, some of my contemporaries, friends, um, really the, the chefs I was able to work with and knew at the time were maybe the kind of the precursor to what's, what we see now. And they might be, you know, we were, we were, I mentioned puppies earlier, we were pretty young back then, but, you know, they're kind of the, the godfathers now of, of, you know, of a lot of the guys that are out there, which I'm basically saying we're a little older um, when I started, the old market was kind of it, you know, there were some, you know, neighborhood spots here and there and, you know, around, but, you know, if you really wanted to go and maybe do fine dining or something that was, um, you know, different than, you know, than, than the neighborhood spot, um, you had to go to the old market. And this was a period where it started to kind of spiral out. And I'll say one of the spots that I worked at, you know, I worked in some Omaha old market restaurants, you know, kind of old standbys. But then um, like the Flatiron Cafe for one was probably one of those starting pieces that started to not, and, you know, it's not, it's, it's downtown, it's close, but it started to kind of move away from, you know, being in a building in the old market and had a unique architecture had a unique space and was a singular entity in and of itself and kind of did its thing. Um, and had some good chefs that came through there. I was fortunate to work with the, the, you know, fortunate to work with the owners there. And then they opened up a, a space outside of that place in Dundee when Dundee started to change. So then we started to see kind of these neighborhoods that were once kind of that, just that, and then became, you know, became spots for people to go to that were beyond just neighborhood based places. Uh, I think Dundee, you see that now with Dundee, but you see it with Benson and you see it with Blackstone. You see it with those different spots. Um, kind of see a little bit of expansion south of the old market now into um, that area. None of that was really there at the time. But the core of the culinary piece was starting to kind of sprint out there. I've always said that if you go back and uh, I, I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine that a chef that you know, has been around for a while. I said, someone could do a family tree from like, if you would take the old French cafe and do a tree, you know, scope that out. I think you probably touch the greater portion or percentage of a lot of the restaurants and, and spots around Omaha today, because it's like the Kevin Bacon of, 
restaurants, there's a connection there, you know, and it's usually, it's not so much six spots. It's more like one or two and you can find a connection back to that space, but you know, it all kind of spiraled out of that spot. So, um, but now you see, you know, you've got a lot of, and, and with that, I'll also say this, um, you know, those chefs and, and those restaurateurs that were starting to create new things also kind of coincided with the rise on the scene of the culinary program at Metro, which, you know, I would say back when I was, you know, waiting tables even and, and even managing certain restaurants back then, very few, if any, of the, the folks in the kitchen probably came out of that program or even went to school. And I'm willing to bet now if you go in, if you pick a restaurant, you go into the back of that kitchen and I would say there's at least someone who there's, there's a greater percentage of the people in the kitchens nowadays that have been in that program or have gone through and completed that program. And you have people now that own restaurants. And um, so they're not only, you know, managing and, and chefing, but they're also, you know, that have ownership. So I think those two things kind of happening simultaneously really kind of changed the, the forefront of what's going on now. But back to my deal, it was, you know, kind of starting out there and then just kind of the people I worked for opened up another restaurant and I moved from there to manage and met a chef. Uh, it's been a close friend of mine to this day, uh, Glenn Wheeler, who's still around and doing some great things around the city, both within the culinary industry, but also just in the community of itself. Um, and I'll, I'll say that's part of that with Metro and those chefs, there was a transition of more of a all encompassing community at that time. Cause there was really more of it. We came out of a very competitive situation where I think the chefs were very territorial pre that time into a time where Glenn and some of his uh, fellow culinarians were very much into sharing ideas, sharing time socially. Uh, and then that kind of evolved into this more uh, kind of interlocking community that we see today. Do you think now that perhaps... 10, 20 years ago, you couldn't have described an Omaha um, food scene, but now you would talk about Omaha has a food scene. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely. I, I, I think maybe before the 10 years ago, probably in the last, between the 10 and 20 years, um, you could see there's some restaurants that definitely have not only a fingerprint, but a footprint um, here. You can see it in some of the national publications and when they're starting to see this, see, you know, Omaha restaurants, um, James Beard Awards nominations for Midwest chefs and restaurants. Um, that is that is definitely there. But there's also some places that we can truly identify as, you know, these are uniquely, you know, spots that are ours uh, from an ownership standpoint. Turning to, to Westside Community Schools and nutrition services, um, what is nutrition services? And then secondly, what, what is it that you do as director? 
nutrition services, pretty simple. It's, we're feeding kids from most, you know, the school year proper, we're, we're feeding, you know, K through 12 educators within our district. And then we have some pieces that also, we also feed some outside of our district. And then in the summer where the age group expands a little bit more than that. Um, but really where the, the meal programs, the breakfast and lunch that the students receive uh, when they come, when they come to school. My position and what we do here, you know, Westside's unique in a lot of ways, but the, the nutrition service program is, is no different. We have, we obviously feed the kids within the district, about 6,000 uh, registered students. Uh, we have 10 elementary schools, one middle school, one high school, a couple offshoots from there. We have kitchens in every one of our schools. Uh, so we do the preponderance of the prep work, cooking um, in each, in all of those locations with certain things coming out of our, our central contract meal kitchen. I'll explain a little bit more in just a moment on that. But we really try to focus and menu plan more and more each year, each month to try to be more of an ingredient based cooking uh, rather than open a box, you know, pour it out, heat and serve type stuff. Um, so we have the kitchens, we have kitchen managers in each of those spots. Um, I just went through ordering for our elementary schools. Uh, so today's big order day. We have delivery every Monday to all of our locations. Um, next week, it'll be a delivery on Tuesday, which is going to be a large headache because we're throwing a wrinkle into our, our delivery, the, our transportation spots for our, our, our salespeople. And we switch that day and it always ends up being a headache, but it happens a couple of times. We can get through it. Um, food comes in and much like a restaurant or any other place, weekly orders, bi-weekly in some of our spots. And we're dealing with fresh produce, vegetables, fruit, other fresh ingredients, ground beef, chicken. Um, we are a uh, school, so we do have a, a surplus of breaded chicken products uh, throughout. But, you know, we've done a, a, a job of trying to source things where it's uh, no antibiotics, try to get the, you know, what we, what we feel that the healthiest product is um, and within that. And then we have a, a kind of two other silos that we work with that all kind of work together. Um, we do contract meal preparation and delivery for, we're at 29 sites outside a district. And those are early childhood center daycares to K through eight um, private schools. And we're doing, we have about 6,000 students within Westside. We're probably sending out, we have six trucks that take off every morning and they're doing average about 4,000 lunches a day being delivered. Um, and that can, that can go anywhere from 3,500 to close to 5,000, depending on what the menu item is today. And they run off a very, you know, a similar, same or very similar menu that we utilize in our elementary schools. So there's three choices every day, a hot menu item, cold alternate, and then a yogurt meal is offered every day so that there's always kind of a fallback more than 10,000 lunches a day. I mean, this is, a, this is a huge operation. And I think there are those people like me that think about, um, are daunted by the task of planning and getting ingredients for and, and mapping out a menu for a Thanksgiving meal, let alone 10,000 lunches a day. This is a, both a business, but also at the same time, you are looking after the physical and mental and emotional well-being through food of like 10,000 people. I would say in addition to that, we also have a piece, a catering piece. The district has always had a, had a catering business, 
Um, and then because of some uh, changes within the district about four years ago, we started, the district started to rebuild certain elementary schools. And we, or a division of nutrition services, which is called Access 66, was a, uh, had a, was a catering business and was a traditional caterer. It had a space that was a community center. So it did business breakfasts, lunches, even some offsite catering as a chef. And because of some changes, that space that was utilized then for the community center um, became the rolling elementary school when they started to rebuild these. They had to move him. So at that particular time, we do we have a partnership. We work with the food bank and we're doing their summer meals. So their trucks would come around and pick up food from our contract site um, and go out and deliver to their site. So they had come to us very luckily at that time and said, you know, we want we want to continue this partnership but we're looking for someone who can do after school dinners during the school year. And I've got something for you. So uh, that we changed this and modified this traditional catering model into a niche caterer now that takes care of a lot of community organizations like North Star and Girls Inc. And these are all after school programs. So to go into what you were saying before about the, you know, sustaining, nurturing people through food, that's a pretty important piece and pretty unique to what we do here and I, I say that I, I want to bring that up because I speak to that proudly because I'm very uh, proud of what those folks do and the food they provide and the the, the community piece that they have. But back to the the logistics part of it, um, you know, it's like I'll say this is like any any business. Um, you're only as good as the people that are working with you. You know, I get to take the credit for a lot of stuff. Um, this is my sixth year, um, but I work with people that have been in this business for lack of a better word, but have been doing this for 14, 15, 16 years and longer. And I, and I came into a situation that was already really good. We have an infrastructure that's set up not only with tangible resources, but the people that are there are incredibly a driven to do, you know, put out a good product and to and basically just to feed kids. And, you know, they, they have a, a, a pride in that. Um, there's a lot of what we do that it would look no different than food and beverage director and chef planning menus in a hotel. Well, we sit down and we'll block out what the, the next couple of weeks are. And we always try to figure out a month at a time, try to figure out, let's put some new items on there, try to come up with something that's a little more creative. And we have multiple people sitting at that table so we can get a great, greater perspective because I can sit there and write a menu, but I need the folks that are, you know, we need the folks that are executing to go, that's not going to travel to 4,000 people and, and make it there in a good way. Um, let's do this. And so we reconfigure things quite a bit. And then it's a price matter. Um, right now we have a very unique situation um, as of last spring in that uh, meals are free in the school system because of some um, parameters that have been released by the USDA um, because of COVID and because of uh, the challenges that are there. And they said, here's, you know, we'll reimburse this much. There's always a reimbursement and a give and take from the, the government. But in this case, it said, you know, take care of this. And for now, we're going to, um, we're going to supplement, which increases, you know, where, you know, some locations that, you know, participation is at a 60% student body. Now that participation may be closer to an 80%. Um, and, 
for our contract meal sites, we're seeing the same thing there where, um, you know, whatever their model is, you know, whether it's a tuition based or whether it's a, you know, whatever it, that might be, we're seeing an increase because they're involved in that piece too. So, So there's some of the operations where you, you know, we've talked about getting the food out of the kitchens to the kids um, and these other after school programs. It's almost like a 365, 24-7 operation that way. Mm-hmm. But what changes have you made to adapt and enhance kind of the supply chain coming in? And so I'm thinking about, you know, farm to table issues, relationships you have with farmers, um, trying to avoid as many of the boxed foods that are mass produced with preservatives in. So, you know, what does that look like for for you guys? We have always had some partnerships with some local farmers. So particularly in the fall, you'll see in our menu, we'll have farm to school, watermelon, different melons. We have an orchard that provides us with apples in that time frame. Um, So that type of produce we have, from time and time kind of moved in and out of different vegetable produce. Sometimes that can be kind of challenging as we talked about the numbers that we're doing. The supply chain on that piece um, sometimes isn't as consistent as we can be. And we're kind of a very timeline oriented um, space. You know, we put it on a menu for, you know, Wednesday, the 14th, we kind of needed to be there Monday, the 12th. And sometimes that can, that can be, uh, hard for people to come up with that quantity, but we do those, those particular produce in the fall, but we have year round things where we'll, we have different um, chicken, produ- a, a local chicken producer that comes outside of Lincoln. We're working now to try to develop, you know, some other pro- uh, protein, I you know, protein, local protein, whether it be chicken, beef. Um, it's kind of an ever growing process as far as the local piece is concerned. Um, the dairies uh, that we deal with, because milk is obviously a, an everyday staple and probably the thing I talk about from an ingredient or get questions about the most out of anything, which I don't, I get it. Um, dairy's big deal. Um, people like chocolate milk. Uh, kids like chocolate <laughs> milk. Parents like white milk. But then we try to, on the, you know, on the outside from the other piece where we're kind of bringing in not so much direct from the farmer, but, you know, through a, a local distributor and dealing with the, 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 uh, the vendors that come from them. We, we try to find periodically we'll do different cuttings and tastings um, and work through products to find a better, you know, a better product. We, we want an ingredient label that has a lot less fates and mitts and zoops and whatever those words are. And is rather than this long, you know, is shortened down to things that we all recognize and understand 
And when we get those cleaner labels, those tend to be the products that we try to push for. We're not 100%. We're not batting 1,000 on that, but we're working towards it and, and getting there slowly but surely. You occupy a role that is, um, in some ways, business development. Because if, for example, you chose just to mass purchase product ingredients from a, you know, a massive national supplier, then you could really damage some the businesses of some local food mm-hmm. producers and suppliers. Uh, do, do, you, do you see your role in, in terms of um, as a community business developer? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, maybe not so much. Um, there's aspects of what we do that are very are, are definitely a, a business. You know, I, I talked about the contract side. Um, that enables us to a provide that service because we do it at a at a way and we provide service not only food wise but administratively to those areas that they don't have to do that. Um, and we do it at a way that's cost efficient for them, but also is cost beneficial for us because of the the uh, efficiencies of scale we're able to do out of that place, it benefits us financially, which in turn, you know, we're not in a business where we're turning the profits around and heading them to board members, you know, or stock pricing, but, but in turn helps us being able to turn around and we just put a, a new serving line in our middle school. And so that money can go to that. We were able to buy equipment in that contract site that able, enables us to more efficiently and quality produce food that then turns around and gives a better product to those sites. Um, so those things, Definitely. It's a business in that respect. The uh, amenity part of that is, you know, kind of what we're looking for to do within Westside. We're providing a, uh, a resource for the students that are in the district. Um, that is not so much a business, but we definitely have to be mindful of the economics of what we're doing. Because if we just keep spending money <laughs> and uh, checks are bouncing, then um, the, the, my, the superintendent probably come talk to me a little bit about, all right, buddy. Um, we got to work on this. But the other side of that and kind of the nuances of it are, you know, we re- we look monthly at what we call percentage, you know, participation uh, schedule, which breakfast and lunches. So we look at all of our schools and see, OK, here's the reg- here, here's how many students are registered for this location. According to that, this is the percentage of students that are actually eating lunch. And we do a month to month, year over year, year over year, over year, over year kind of look at where we're progressing or where we're not progressing to kind of troubleshoot items like, okay, if we're producing a product that's, you know, a dog, for whatever reason it might benefit us to do, but if no one's going to eat it, you and I as grown people and probably a little more conscious of what we're putting into our system, you know, can say, well, we should, you should eat this, you know, a skinless chicken breast grilled. And I can put that on an, you know, an elementary school menu. And we, and we do do uh, versions of that, but it may not be as palatable as something else that would go, go there. And so as much as I would like to say, here's what we're, we're going to do, all of these items, we have to be very conscious because as you were saying, you know, our district has, we're at about 36% free and reduced rate, which is another factor that comes into this. So in many, in those folks' lives and those students' lives, Sometimes, unfortunately, this is the only meal that they receive. So it behooves us to both be as healthy and good with the ingredients, but it also has to be something that is at times, you know, basically kid-friendly. We try to roll some nuances into those every now and then and sprinkle that in, but we also have some traditional classics that kids recognize and can go. But to, to the point of the business, 
um, we were just having a conversation amongst ourselves about a, a product that we were using and, and it was it's no longer available to us. Uh, and last year, um, we started to see this on our radar and I was substituted a, I'm going to do bunny ears, like item um, that came through and was terrible. If I serve the wrong, we'll call it, we'll say chicken nugget. They, I get the wrong product in. Uh, every third grader in in the West Side community schools and every elementary school kid or whatever area hits will will not the greater proportion of them will not eat that product for the remainder of the school year. So we have to be very mindful of what, what we're putting down as well because you know it it, it can ruin someone's day. So they have, um, they have more sophisticated palates, and perhaps we give we give yeah. credit for you know once burn you know yeah muscle memory <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> tongue memory. got this long arc of a career and now you're leading a really substantial entity in the city that touches daily the lives of thousands of people. What lessons have you learned about yourself when you think about being equipped to be a leader? So do you feel like a leader? And if you do or don't, why? What is it you've learned about yourself in, you know, to equip you to, to be in this role? At times, I feel like a leader. And <laughs> uh, uh, when I rem- when I come across one of those again, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> really, the you know, I think the role I have is you know is a position within the you know the structure of what we do. You know, we have kitchen managers that manage kitchen cook food for the schools. We have um, other managers that help them and our resources for that. Hopefully, I'm part of that umbrella. Um, but my, I have a role within this piece. Um, if you look at an organizational chart that's on paper, yes, it would appear that I would be the leader. And there are some times where I do have veto power. Um, but as I mentioned before, I work with, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of very strong-willed, good quality individuals. So most of the time we kind of find ourselves migrating in the same direction and getting there. And then, then at that point, it's just, we just kind of have to fill in what we have, uh, what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it, I would say, yeah, I guess I'm a leader. I'm, I will be looked at as that point. I don't necessarily feel like that all the time. There are those moments where it's like, okay, yeah, I guess I am. Um, I'm definitely the, the figurehead. <laughs> so I'm the person that gets the call. So, uh, so from that perspective, yeah. But, uh, no, I think, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I kind of lean, my daughter is a, is a student in this district. So I get very quick direct feedback, positive or negative. Uh, and, and she has a very, she has her own refined palate, uh, if you will. So 
we are we are given direction from a lot of different areas and sometimes it's from a 10 year old i'm glad that you think when you think about providing menus and sort of planning this operation for thousands of people that you're really thinking about an audience of one and how will that audience respond <laughs> yeah uh it's i tell the story i think it's, so she's 10 now so she was probably eight when this happened and we had worked really hard on this menu item and put a lot of thought into it. Thought we had, you know, we very creatively marketed it on the, the calendar. So we have electronic versions of all this stuff, but the elementary school menu always goes back to that calendar that you can put up on a refrigerator or something. And so we had, you know, set it out and it was just a bust. No fault of anybody, but it just was something that couldn't be executed the way we thought it could be. And we tried it out and did it. And we thought we had it all worked out in our little test area. And so I came home, my daughter's there, not looking at me doing whatever she's doing over here. And I always kind of like to inquire, so would you have lunch for lunch today? So I had the sandwich. So, okay. So I, what'd you think? And as she, this, the eight-year-old is kind of minding her own business. She looked up to me, put her hand on my knee and said, daddy, not your best work. You, you have to think of your guest. <laughs> yeah. Always. <laughs> like, what did they want to eat? How did the district, how did you pivot when the pandemic hit? All the uncertainty around that, uh, school closures, school attendance, meals for kids, um, order, supply chains, um, menu planning, all these things uncertain. So, you know, March 13th is a pretty important day in, you know, a lot of our lives, uh, particularly in education. And we were, Westside, I say we were fortunate or unfortunate because the majority of the school districts around us were either in spring break or going into spring break kind of within the next week or two of that post. We were not until some weeks later. So we kind of had to think on the fly a little quicker and execute a little quicker. Uh, we transitioned into, the, so the, some of the alphabet soup that we work in, we have the National School Lunch Program, NSLP, but there's also the, the summer feeding program which is kind of the umbrella that we're operating under now, um, which helps us provide the free meals and, and some of the, the um, freelancing that we're able to do from the USDA. We switched to that program because that's what we were given. And we started to do, um, that program generally runs through the summer, obviously, and then you have to be congregate, um, which is counter to what you need to do there. So they got rid of the congregate. Um, you're supposed to eat at that day, in that day, People are taking it home, so there's no way to manage that. So they got rid of some of the things that really provided us some ability to do things. But then we're a in-kitchen, cooking-for-the-day type of joint, right? So 
we really started to kind of map out and we started providing pretty much week next week. So that was the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th on the Monday. Um, we started working and providing and that first day was rough. It, I, it, I, you know, it was, uh, it was as bad as any, you know, bad restaurant night I've ever had. Um, and we were doing um, meal kits, basically take home meal kits that were providing five breakfasts and five lunches in those meal kits, drive up, put in car and drive away. Um, the first day uh, going into this completely blind, not knowing what we're going to serve, we provided 12,000 meals like that. And so we knew we had another week because we were going to do this on a day, one day basis. We wanted to do that to a limit people coming and going, try to keep traffic down, keep our staff more isolated um, because that was a, that was a huge challenge at that particular time. Cause you had a lot of people that, you know, I have folks that are, that work with us that are older, that may have some underlying health issues, you know, all of the things, all of the ingredients that COVID likes in that situation. So we were dealing with that piece. The district was dealing about with how to, you know, what the pay structure was going to be and how we were going to validate these things. Cause we were going to have a lot of people that weren't coming to work. But you, you know, so they, you know, I think like most districts, the people around decided we're going to pay full boat for whatever your schedule is. Um, so now you have the challenge. Of, well, they don't need to come to work. Why do I need to come to work? But I didn't really hear a lot of that. I, all, majority of our staff, if not all our staff were like, yeah, we're in. Um, what do you need from us? And so then we just kind of restructured a kind of an assembly line production piece, both at our contract site and in our high school, because right then, Within a few weeks after that, um, our partner, the food bank, came and said, we want to be able to distribute meals on these days, these days, these at these locations. So then we were running through March in the middle of summer. We were running out of Westside's locations anywhere from 12,000 to 15, 16,000 meals a week. Um, so half breakfast, half lunch. Those were being produced and put together out of our high school kitchen and then distributed out to three locations uh, to hand out every Monday. And then uh, out of our contract site, we were doing 28,000 to 29,000 meals a week for the food bank um, at, at, that they were taking out and handing out at different times. So it was, uh, it, we had to really, we, re, we basically rethought of how we do things and you know, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that was very counter to what our real life is like and all the programs are like. So I, I give credit to the, the state and federal agencies for kind of really thinking through this and going through that. And then the staff, again, that we work with, and it, it happened throughout the, throughout the city with a lot of school districts doing this, um, having to do that. So basically that was the summer, you know, from March 13th and through the summer, and then we come back to school year proper and we've been dealing with Westside is doing color coded aspects. So you have the red, which is everybody's at home, which is how we finished the year last year. Uh, we've been in either yellow or green. Um, and so yellow has been half, uh, you know, the top half of the alphabet Monday, Tuesday, the bottom half of the alphabet Thursday, Friday, and then you have a Wednesday in the middle to do that. And so uh, we're going back to green next week, but we're currently in yellow. So what we're doing right now, so we have the in-house kids that we're feeding, which is about this 
current semester, we're about 11,000, 11%, I should say, 10 to 11% of our student body have chosen to stay home um, for whatever reason. And so they're learning the extended campus, e-learning Monday through Friday. So the rest of the population is back in yellow. Um, so yellow, we have the kids that are in. We have some early childhood centers that are in some of our schools. We're feeding them Monday through Friday. And then Wednesdays have been distribution days for take-home meals, whether it be a three-day or a five-day. So you can come pick up a, if your kid's in school Thursday, Friday, you can get breakfast and lunch from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then if you're a five-day, we have that available too. You can, if you're learning at home, you can do a five-day. So next week we're going to transition and still be in green mode, but we're still going to have a Wednesday afternoon distribution um, for those um, families that are eating at home. So uh, and we're seeing on our contacts that we have a lot of variations on things. We have um, meals in the classroom. We have hybrid models in, in those locations where you have half of their student body is eating in a cafeteria and the other half is taking back. So we're working with, you know, clamshell, you know, different disposable pieces. Uh, we were able to find some sustainable clamshells and things like that. So it's a little better on our environment. At least it helps us look in the mirror a little bit better on those things been a really um, kind of strange time. And then you throw in the fact that everything's free, which um, increased people's interest in the meals, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but also, you know, a little bit of a challenge because, you know, your numbers go up and now you're, you've got four different ways, you know, the, which way are we serving at this location? So um, it's been, it's been an interesting exercise. We'll be, we'll be very happy to get back to whatever, that normality is going to be whenever it hits, but um, we now know that we can do some things that we wouldn't have probably thought about doing prior to this. You really get to see how, how good the folks are around you are. They're great, great people, great intentions, and putting out a really good product. My guest today has been Erin Vick, Director, Nutrition Services for Westside Community Schools in Omaha. Erin, thanks for sharing some of that history and what you've been doing with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.